We continue our look tonight into the issues that are impacting our cities. Last night, we looked at uh, the issue of homelessness. Tonight, we're going to look at an issue that is probably a little more hidden, and that's food insecurity. It's not purely a urban issue. It exists across this country. But in many ways, the, du- the dual uh, pressures of high housing costs um, and high grocery costs these days are creating more food insecurity in urban areas. Um, I saw a really interesting report that came out yesterday by a group called Feed Ontario um, that found that in the year ending this past March 31st, nearly 600,000 people in that province alone, 600,000 people had access to food bank, a 15% increase over the last two years. It represents some 4.3 million visits. That's a 42% increase over the same period. It was called the Hunger Report. It also said in the first nine months of 2022, the number of people accessing food banks was up 24% over the year before, and that one in three people was seeking help from a local food bank for the first time. One in three, a 24% increase in one in three people was at a food bank for the first time. In other words, more people are turning to food banks because they have to, and those who use them are doing so more often. This is the sixth consecutive year, by the way, that food bank use has risen, according to that report. Uh, it, it feeds into something called food insecurity. Not, not everyone who is food insecure will turn to a food bank. It's often the last resort when you're food insecure. But if you look across this country, nearly 20%, as high as 20% of Canadian households, are food insecure. 40% of single mother-led ones are food insecure. Um, and food charity, which often seems like the obvious place to ease that problem, has never been a real solution to that. In fact, uh, many people who work in that field don't think it is. And those who turn to food charity don't can't put food reliably put food on the table either. In fact, uh, it's you know it's seen as a last resort, as I was saying, uh, when there are no other options. So, what are the solutions to this because clearly food banks it was meant to be temporary when food banks came along decades ago and here they are sort of an integral part of how we meet these emergencies and as was pointed out by a listener earlier it's in many ways it's it's a it's a it's a scar on canadian society that so many people even those working families are forced to turn to aid simply to put proper food on the table you know there must be a better way of doing this And again, I've noticed it here in Victoria, you notice it elsewhere. Cities are the epicenter of this problem. They're not the only place where it exists. It exists everywhere. But cities are often the epicenter because the pressures, the jobs are here. Uh, Rents are expensive. Housing's expensive. Food's expensive. Gas is expensive. Everything is climbing. So what are the solutions? To help us with that, Valerie Tarasek is a professor of the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Toronto and leads a group called Proof, a research program that investigates policy interventions to reduce food insecurity in this country. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. It feels like as we head into the holidays, uh, we see lots of appeals from food banks. We're seeing lots of concern. I reported of Ontario yesterday with the surge in use of food banks. And it all leads uh, the layperson to think that food insecurity is becoming an increasingly uh, large problem in this country. Well, I think it's, I don't know if it's becoming increasingly large, but I think it's becoming increasingly serious. Mm. I mean, we've long known that the number of people who are food insecure in Canada is quite a bit larger than the number who turn up in food banks. Um, The differences are maybe four or five fold. So it's a Mm. substantial difference. But we've also long known that 
the use of food banks and food charity more broadly in Canada is a strategy of last resort. It makes sense, right? In an affluent society like ours, going to a public charity and, you know, to speaking to total strangers and proclaiming your inability to to afford the food, vital food that you need for yourself and your family. Like that's a hugely humiliating thing to do. And so people don't do it unless they really have to. And so I think the surge in demand for food banks that we're hearing about now across the country, I think what that's telling us is that we've got more and more people in more desperate circumstances as we head into the winter and a winter with absolutely unprecedented food price inflation, among other things. I guess in that sense, what, what you're, you're watching is that, uh, I mean, this is people slipping through the cracks quite literally at that point. This is, uh, it was amazing how many first, first time users that were yeah. seen in that Ontario report. Yeah. yeah. I have to take you up on this uh, slipping through sure. the cracks phrase because I, you, I've said that myself. Right. Correct, correct someone, away. Correct away. Yes. There's someone who works at a food bank in Toronto who is very smart. And she very gently heard me say that a few years ago, very gently kind of shifted me and said, these aren't cracks. This is by design. You know, the things that are, are not allowing people to afford basic necessities like food, those things are built into some of our public policies. They're baked in. And right. so, you know, cracks implies that it's an accident. But here we are in 2022. People like me have been documenting problems of food insecurity for decades now. And the situation isn't getting better. If anything, it's getting worse. And for sure, it's getting way, way, way more serious. And so, you know, it's time for us to look upstream and say, like, who's in charge here? Absolutely. And I guess one thing that you pointed out, and I think is uh, important to talk about, is that food insecurity reaches far beyond the kitchen table, right? It has a yeah. it has a hugely... Uh, has a huge impact on 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 any family or any person that's that's suffering through it. Yeah, what we have found is that by the time somebody is in a situation where they're having trouble affording enough to eat, we call them food insecure. We find them by asking the questions about their ability to afford enough to eat. But once we scratch the surface, we realize that the person who can't afford enough to eat is also having trouble paying the rent. And they're probably behind in utility bills. If they have telecommunications of any sort, they've likely defaulted on them. If they have prescription medications of any sort, and most of them will have, because the intersection between food insecurity and chronic health problems is, is, you know, hand in glove. But then if they have prescription medications that have any cost associated with them at all, even if it's a $2 dispensing fee, those prescriptions are probably not being filled or taken as prescribed. So, you know, we start out by talking about people's inability to afford the food they need, but it's really, really important to recognize that that is symptomatic of a more pervasive financial crisis in these households. And and one expects too that when you look at the impact of that, that it's um, as usual in, in this country, those who can least afford it who are now being punished by these very high food prices. That is absolutely absolutely true. To give you an example, the single most vulnerable group, if we just look at kind of uh, livelihoods or you know sources of income, the single most vulnerable group in this country are people dependent on social assistance. So welfare programs, but also provincially administered disability support programs. In most parts of this country, those benefits, I mean, for years, those benefits have been documented to be insufficient to cover basic costs of rent and food and whatever in many jurisdictions. But in most parts of the country, those benefits are an index to inflation. So 
as we move through this year with, you know, the price of eggs, the price of milk going through the roof, the poorest people in our provinces, in most provinces in this country, the poorest people have become poor because those, their benefits haven't been increased. It really speaks to some very fundamental problems with our public policy machinery, right? That how, how could we let that happen? You know, I mean, how would we expect somebody on welfare to somehow be able to absorb these the continually rising prices, especially of this magnitude? And especially just how universal it is, because we see the cost of housing jumping, uh, as well as the cost of food. Food is almost like the final, sort of the final cut, right, Uh, so to speak. That's right. Our reliance on charity, and this is always something we've been talking about, sort of problems that cities face this week. And I know this is not necessarily an urban issue, food insecurity, but it feels like urban, you know, often within an urban environment, you know, housing is more expensive uh, and so forth. Our reliance on charities hasn't seemed to have gone away either. I was reading an interesting article, speaking of your many decades of work in this, you know, the food banks were set up many, many years ago as a temporary solution to a temporary need. And here we are 40 years later, still more reliant on them than we've ever been before. Yeah, that's right. Canada is unique in the Western world in this extraordinary dependence on charity. I mean, through the pandemic, as a whole lot of people lost work, what we saw then was, again, and I keep using this term unprecedented, but again, it was an unprecedented outpouring of support for food charity, among other things. But one of the things that happened was provincial governments and, and the federal government started to pour cash into the food charity system. And we saw, you know, cabinet ministers making speeches saying, we're not going to let any Canadians go hungry. We're going to give millions of dollars to this ad hoc community-based charity system that, you know, for 40 years now, the people who operate that system have been saying, look, we're not the solution. We can't do this, right? We're not, you know, we're just a stopgap. We're just a band-aid. Like, you know, what we've seen that I think is really worrisome is the merging of that community-based response, you know, seat of the pants operations with federal and provincial policy now to say, well, you know, we're going to do this. I mean, we recently, I think it's recently as last week, there was an economic statement in Alberta by that with the premier in Alberta that was pledging, I don't know, $20 million to food banks going forward. And I mean, if there's one thing I know with absolute certainty, putting more money into food banks will not reduce the prevalence or severity of food insecurity in Canada. It hasn't yet, and it's not going to. And, you know, adding more millions isn't going to change that. The reliance on food charity is, I mean, it's part of the problem right now. It's not part of the solution. Valerie Tarasek is with us, a professor in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at U of T, also the head of Proof, a research program that investigates a policy to reduce food insecurity in this country. And we come to the solutions because you've been talking about them for a long time, but it feels like when we hit these sort of, you know, coming out of the the, the the height of the pandemic into a period of high inflation, where it feels like a lot of people have been really, I mean, I hate to use the term sort of beat up by the system, but it feels like it's real hard for a lot of people to make ends meet these days. And we've been hearing about that for a long time, but it feels more acute now than it has in the past. What needs to be done so that maybe we could take opportunity from all of this to build back better as a, not to use that awful cliche, but this is an opportunity to build back better when it comes to some of these core issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, at the end of the day, somebody who's not able to afford the food they need is somebody who doesn't have enough money. Yeah, it's um, that simple, right? It's, that's that well, simple. Well, you yeah. know, I mean, it it's, is. It's, yeah. you know, there's a bit, probably a bit more to it than that, mm-hmm. but we're never going to know what else there is to it until we deal with this fundamental income problem. 
you know, when we look at who it is that's food insecure in Canada, I mentioned earlier the very, very high prevalence of food insecurity among people relying on social assistance. So provincially administered programs and about two thirds of those people will be classified as food insecure. And so, you know, there's an obvious need for a rethinking of the adequacy of social assistance benefit levels and improvements. And we've seen across the country where where benefits improve, the rate of food insecurity amongst people on income support programs decreases. So like we know it works, but that's something that needs to be built into our system more. The other thing that I should flag though, is that when we look at the total universe of people who are food insecure in Canada, over half of them are in the workforce. So there are households, I should say, that are reliant on employment income. So these are people who are working, but still unable to make ends meet. And why is that? Well, you know, low-wage, precarious employment, inadequate employment standards, so no protection, you know, from uh, job loss, job insecurity, probably no benefits. I mean, we heard through the pandemic about people in, you know, large urban centers like Toronto who couldn't afford to stay home from work, even though they'd been exposed to COVID or risked COVID exposure because they couldn't afford to go without that day's pay. And unquestionably, if I had gone over there with food insecurity questionnaires, they would have been in our, you know, in our net. Yes, we've got an appalling problem of the inadequacy of, you know, our so-called income support programs of last resort, welfare and disability supports. But we also have a very big problem of food insecurity in the workforce. And that takes us to a different way of thinking about policy, right? Because we've done studies to demonstrate that, you know, minimum wage is part of this story. And it's important, you know, when, as provincial governments argue about whether or not to raise minimum wage and how much to raise it. Somebody needs to sit in the middle of those arguments and say, this is about food insecurity. You know, your decision to raise that by 20 cents or $2, like that's about food insecurity in your province. We also need to think about transfer payments. Things like the Canada Child Benefit is not insulating Canadian families from food insecurity, not nearly as well as it could be, but also things like the mysterious Canada Worker Benefit. You know, what else can we be doing to reach out and provide supports to people? Because we want people to be in the workforce, but it's not okay to have so many unable to make ends meet. What could we do in the short term, do you think, that would make an impact? Could, I mean, the other thing I worry about looking to the winter is just, you know, those who suffer in silence. I think of the elderly on, on income support and so on, and those on disability support who, if it's not indexed, I don't I don't know how they're going to pay the bills this winter. What can we do in the near future, do you think, that could be a, something that uh, would have results? One of the things that I think the federal government should do is increase the Canada Child Benefit for the right. lowest income families. Right now in Canada, the mere fact that a household contains someone under the age of 18 is enough to increase their risk of food insecurity. That is just unbelievable, right? But that's a little fact of life that's been documented by researchers in this domain for years. So when we look at the Canada Child Benefit, it's a a benefit that goes to over 90% of Canadian families. It's a beautiful benefit in the sense that it also reaches people on social assistance because it's a federal benefit. So it's not clawed back from um, by the provinces. So, you know, it's reach is phenomenal. And that means it has the power to make a big difference for families with children. But there, there are thresholds, uh, you know, as to how much you get. And what we can see is that the amount of benefit that goes to families in that very lowest income range, the people with incomes below like $30,000, $35,000, families with incomes below thirty or thirty, like we're not talking a lot of money here. No. That 
if the federal government threw another thousand dollars per child on the, you know, on, on on those tables per year, it would make a huge difference to the probability of food insecurity in those in those families. And now, okay, where would they get that money from? Well, earlier I said that the Canada Child Benefit goes to over ninety percent of Canadian families. Think about that. That means that the Canada Child Benefit is going to families with incomes like over two hundred thousand dollars. Right. They don't, need, they don't need the Canada Child Benefit. So you know, this really is a bit of a Robin Hood story, right? That if we simply pulled back a little bit of the top end of that benefit and gave it to the bottom end, we can make a huge difference. So you know, you asked about like what can we do in the short term? Honestly, this is low hanging fruit. You know, we have yet to see policymakers at the federal or provincial level really seriously saying, okay, what what's in my toolkit? Child benefits is a very simple one. It could also be working at a provincial level in many provinces. Valerie Tarasek, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you.